Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the journalist and human rights activist, Natasha Walter. She is the author of two generation-defining books about feminism, The New Feminism, published in the late 90s, and Living Dolls, published just over 10 years later a truly shocking polemic in which she questioned her own previous beliefs that equality was on the way to being a given. And old-fashioned sexism was just that, old-fashioned. Oh, how we laughed. Her new book, Before the Light Fades, is very different, and yet has a lot in common with those books. A memoir of grief and resistance, it follows Natasha, now in her 50s, on a journey into her mother's past after losing her to suicide in her mid-70s. What she finds not only makes her question what she thought she knew about her mother, but also what she wants for her future self. There's also massive value in stepping into your desires to contribute, you know, to be part of a network, to be part of a movement, to be part of change without feeling that you have to go, me, 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 I'm going to take the responsibility. And it's really important. Natasha joined me to talk about getting to know your parents as people, rejecting her mother's feminism, and why we must keep talking across the generations. We also discussed what feminine rebellion looks like, doing civil disobedience in her 50s, and why she's so over-organising other people. Me too, Natasha. Me too. Oh, and thanks to Natasha's mum, I have a new mantra. Repeat after me. You have shoes. Thank you very much for asking me to do this. I really love the premise of the podcast that, you know, the voices of older women and how interesting it is looking at the range of people you've had. So thank you. Oh, no, I was delighted you want to come on. It's, you know, it's so interesting because I started it really three years ago in September. And I just, the initial plan was just to do, I was just going to do six episodes and and see. And it, it took off so quickly it was obviously I was not the only one sat in my living room going where where's everybody gone yeah yeah. you know I can't stop thinking about the book I've been just being it's just taken root in my head so I'd be really I mean it'd be really interesting to see how it goes have you had much response yeah yes so it started obviously there's no sort of formal response really yet it hasn't yet been published so I'm in that slightly you know that in limbo sort of trepidatious <laughs> time yeah. when you're sort of waiting to see what people think but I've had you know obviously the response I've had so far have been kind of incredibly warm I mean I remember reading the new feminism in the 90s and then reading living dolls when it came out and actually I just listened to it again really shocked me actually listening to it again how shocking it still was um and this is a real before the light fades feels like a real departure for you. So yes. tell tell me what led up to the writing of it. It is a real departure for me. And I suppose that's why, you know, this run up to publication does feel a bit more anxious because it's such a personal book. You know, I've really put myself on the page and it's very, very honest. That's not to say my other books weren't honest, but my other books, The New Feminism and Living Dolls, I was writing more at a distance and I was writing, I suppose, 
those books from a place of greater certainty. You know, I'd go out, I'd do my research, I'd, you know, marshal the ideas. And by the time I came to sort of put them down on paper or to give them to my publisher, I was quite certain about what I wanted to express, what I wanted to, what was going wrong, as it were, (laughs) what I wanted to see change. This is a completely different book because it really came out of, it comes out of a personal journey that I was on and a time of great uncertainty for me. So while I was writing it, I was exploring, you know, I didn't know really what the book was until I'd written it, you know, because it, Mm. it springs from my own reaction to my mother's death. My mother died at the end of 2017. She took her own life. And I started to write about my reactions to her death, not necessarily think it was, I I wasn't sure it was going to be a book at that point. It was more, you know, I'm a writer and I tend to, Mm -hmm. you know, I was sort of exploring some of the thoughts on paper. It kind of helped me to, um, in my grief, to to put them down, those thoughts and those feelings, as, as many writers find. But then it also turned into this exploration of my family history and of this political moment that we're, I felt I was living through and that I then found echoes in the political moments and the political activism of my mother and her father. So it's a it's a book that is that goes on a journey, and I was going on a journey while. I was writing it. It's one of the things that struck me right from the beginning is you talk early on about how, about your mother's timidity and her almost fearfulness. I think if if that's, if that's the right word to use and it, but it struck me from the minute, almost the minute you start describing her, in fact, from the fact of her death and the way she chose to approach that. There's nothing timid. She doesn't come across to an outsider. She doesn't come across as timid at all. And it's so interesting, isn't it? The way we see our own families, the way we see our mothers and our parents versus how they look from outside. Absolutely. And that's exactly, you know, that was this emotional journey that I was going on so much through the book that the mother you know, my mother, who I'd known in the last years of her life, did seem to me often a timid, quite uncertain woman. You know, the reason, well, there wasn't one reason, but the main reason that she took her own life was that she thought she had dementia. And that was obviously leading to fear and uncertainty completely um, understandably. But there were, she was someone who also had other sort of fears and uncertainty sometimes in the way that she was in the world. And yet, Then as I sort of looked back through her life, this other woman came forward to me, which is just, you know, in her youth, but also in midlife and also in old age in many ways, a woman of great courage, of great spirit. One reader just said to me, I was very struck by your mother's unerring sense of purpose. And Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? But one of the wonderful things about when people start to come back to you with their responses, when they are generous and engaged, you know, is that you hear back from them, yes, that's right, that's what she had. And that's what I feel. She had this incredible sense of purpose, this courage. She was somebody who didn't live by other people's rules a lot of the time. She had her own moral compass and that, and she lived by that. I mean, you know, you when you're growing up, when you're young, your parents mm. are very much, obviously, this is the centre of 
your world when you're very small. And then they're what you try and sort of diverge from, do you know mm, what I mean, as, yeah. as you get older. So I think I sort of took that for granted about my parents a lot of the time, if you know what I mean, that sort of moral courage, they're sort of intransigence often. And so writing that book and thinking about that again and what that intransigence stemmed from, from for her and for my father, I found it very inspiring. And and then I and so I realized as I was writing the book that that was the story that I was I was telling, that I am telling in the book. It is a story, like you say, it is a story of courage, my mother's courage. And also courage, I think, of many people in her generation and many people in her father's generation of standing up for what they believe to be right, even in the knowledge that they might never win. And I think it's that that is very important for me to hold on to. Interesting, then, you just said, even in the knowledge that they might never win. And I wonder if that's the thing that's changed, is that when... Now, it feels like often we go into something, we want to know that there's going to be a positive outcome rather than doing it for its own ends. I mean, I haven't been thinking about that. It just popped Mm. into my head when you said that. I think that's absolutely right. And as campaigners, you know, I'm very involved in campaigning in different ways. I ran an organisation working with refugee women for a long time, which was a campaigning organisation as well as um, running services I'm involved in environmental activism and as campaigners we're often encouraged to think you know what does success look like and what are the wins that we're going for that's absolutely right we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't want to change things and we didn't want to win but I think there's also that strength that comes in just having faith that you do the right thing even if you're not sure if you're ever going to win it's still you do the thing that's right at that moment and that comes over to me you know, very clearly in my mother's life, but also even more so in her father's life. When I talk about my grandfather and his life in the 1930s, I'm not in any way trying to draw parallels between what we face now and what people faced in the 1930s in Germany. It's no direct parallels. I think echoes always down the generations that you want to try and do what's right. And even if you fail, it was important that you did try. So my grandfather was, he was involved in anti-Nazi resistance in the 1930s. He was imprisoned and tortured and then became a refugee sort of on the run through Europe for a few years before he got to Britain. And, you know, he failed mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, politi- you know, in the political <laughs> sense, but he succeeded in other ways. And I think those sort of, you know, just thinking about the courage of that generation is is still Mm. you know, is very important. How do you think your mother was affected by being the child of refugees? Because even though your grandfather, we now know, you know, was incredibly brave and activist and fought for what he believed in, that wasn't the way she was brought up really, was it? That's right. So she... Once my grandfather got to Britain, he was then detained as well in Britain in that huge internment of Jewish refugees. After that, he very much became, he became a very quiet person. He became somebody who felt it was important to keep your head down. Particularly, I think it was out of a desire to protect his family. You know, once he Mm -hmm. had children, he really felt 
He didn't want to see his family go through what he had gone through. So it was a very quiet sort of bourgeois conventional family that my mother actually grew up in. And she never knew that much about what he'd been through until sort of later in life when, you know, interestingly in her midlife, she went on a sort of journey of trying to, to find out more. But he really didn't speak about what he'd been through very much. And I think that's quite, you know, that's often the case for refugees, particularly at that time when there was less emphasis on the importance of talking through things. Yeah. So how do you think that that influenced her? Because she was from a, from quite a young age. I mean, her there's a moment where you write in the book about the, finding the document of her first incidents of civil disobedience, which... I just absolutely love the idea of her and her with her handbag and her tweed A-line skirt doing civil disobedience. (laughs) Obviously, she did get that from her father, but it's the antithesis of how she was actually brought up. I know that was so interesting to me and such a sort of conundrum really in her life. But yeah, she had this courage from a young age. She was very like her father in that way. Um, And she went out into the nuclear disarmament movement wholeheartedly. Um, she was getting involved in illegal sit-downs and even more sort of courageous activity, illegal activity, to try and stop nuclear weapons in the UK. So she was this very brave woman who was throwing herself into activism. But her father didn't support it, even though it echoed what he had done in his youth. And it caused a real rift between them for a while because he wanted to make her a ward of court to try and stop her from going out into civil disobedience. And they really fought and they argued about it a lot. How Um, old was she then? So she was 19 then and still living at home. And I think there was also, she felt that there was also protectiveness because she was a young woman. Complex layers of family history. He had actually been an illegitimate son. His real biological mother had not been married and he'd been brought up by his aunt. And she felt there was also that protectiveness when she looked back, you know, in later life, that he was worried that she would become sexually active and blah, 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 and drawn into this whole sort of maelstrom of alternative life that was burgeoning in the the 1960s. So, yeah, it was this very protective family, but she really wanted to live her own life. So she went out, got arrested, spent the night in police stations, you know, came home the next day refused to listen to her father saying you're not allowed to do that and really put a lot into being an activist in the nuclear disarmament movement and there she met my father Nicholas Walter who was also a campaigner he was for him it was an intellectual he was journey as well as I think she was very sort of emotionally engaged Mm -hmm. engaged as a young woman in activism he was sort of Oxford graduate you know called himself an anarchist, wrote a lot of articles and pamphlets in the nuclear disarmament movement. And so that he was different in from her in a lot of ways, but they really shared this. They shared this courageous, strong political spirit. They shared this belief that, you know, by taking part in this kind of campaigning, you could make a better world. You could be part of making a better world. And that that's what you should be doing. You know, there was this moral imperative that they felt that there's injustice in the world, there's violence. We need to go out and make a difference. So what was it like for you growing up activist parents? Well, I had such a happy childhood. They were wonderful parents. And as well that I want to say about my mother, she didn't have that loving a childhood herself. Her own mother being a very young refugee woman, her parents, my 
mother's grandparents had been killed in Treblinka in the Holocaust. So she was carrying a lot of trauma, my grandmother. And Ruth, my mother, you know, didn't feel that love, didn't feel that safe as a small child. When she came to have children of her own, she really created, you know, a loving and joyful family life. She really was the most engaged and spirited, loving mother. And my father to, you know, it was a really, really happy time. I always felt protected. I always felt safe. And I feel that, you know, yes, we went out to all the master marches, blah, 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 always, you know, through my childhood, there was this assumption that you're sort of, yeah, it was good to get involved in stuff, to show up, you know, to be there. I thought, you know, it was, that was just part of something I did. (laughs) (laughs) And then of course, as a teenager, I thought it was really boring. And as a young woman in my twenties, and I wanted to live a different life. And I went and worked as sort of women's magazines. And, you know, I didn't want to be clomping around on demonstrations, holding my placards for a long while. And I felt, you know, you've tried that and it hasn't really worked. And then later on in my life, I've come back to being much more much more engaged in that kind of activism and campaigning. And I see the value of it so much more. Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a moment, but I want to ask you a little bit more about your mum and how how she influenced your feminism, if you like. One of the things I keep thinking as you're talking, as I was thinking I was reading the book, is that you set her up at the beginning as this, and I've said this already, but this as this timid, fearful woman who's a bit panicky about traveling and is is terrified of getting dementia as I think many of us are, but she had a, you know, her father had had it. And yet as, as we, as you discover her, you start to say, oh, well, you know, there were no Barbie, there was no Barbie or Cindy or Enid Blyton in our house. And she wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't dress like a mom. Yeah. <laughs> so you all the time you're building this picture of this kind of like rebel, but not seeing her that way yourself, which is so interesting. It's so funny, isn't it? Though, of course, I did see, you know, I did see that she was rebellious, but I kind of resented it at times. You know, I tell the story in the, about how, you know, I went to a very conventional girls school for my secondary school and I used to, you know, blush when she came in to parents' evenings. You know, she'd have her, she'd be wearing her sort of jeans and anorak and her skull sandals. I mean, she looked great, you know, looking back. But of course, I didn't want, I wanted a mum like the other mums who were wearing their sort of nice floral dress or their sort of, you know, little skirt suit or, whatever, you know, and their pumps. I, I didn't really want that. And so, yeah, I, I think my relationship, you know, my feelings about her changed. And that, like I say in the book, I, it's a journey that I went on after her death. And it's a conversations. I did have some of these conversations with her. Their conversations obviously were broken by death. But with feminism, she was a feminist. You know, she was a feminist mm-hmm. in the 60s. She was a feminist in the 1970s. Got spare ribs. She, you know, read the great feminist writers and she didn't, it wasn't as though she kind of sat at their feet and was like, oh, you've opened my eyes. She was more, yeah, absolutely. I always felt that. I never wanted to be constrained as a woman, you know, and it was a, so she loved women's liberation. And in a way, she didn't have to intellectualize it too much. It was very much just, you know, that's who she was. And then I think as I came into feminism, I did reject some of that what her what she had found in feminism so you know her rejection of that conventional feminine 
you know, I felt, why can't we do that? Why can't we have those choices? You know, I bought into that idea of that sort of 90s choice feminism. We can do, we can kind of have all of that. And I, that's the sort of feminism that I explore in, in the new feminism, that very mm. sort of optimistic, you know, quite breezy. You know, we just have to put in place the kind of conditions for equality. We need more, you know, stronger equal pay regulations. We're going to smash this, you know, we're smashing all the glass ceilings. Things are going great. And then um, a few years after that, I realized that things weren't really that straightforward and Mm. that sexism is much, 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 much harder to crack than that. And that's when I started exploring the ideas that led to living dolls. And I'm just so glad that I had those conversations with my mum and we talked more about sexism, more about feminism, honestly, together. And she was a really important reader for me of Living Dolls. We talked about that a lot and how things had changed since the 1960s, you know. But you um, write early on in the book about uh, Me Too and kind of the rise of Trump and that kind of women's march that um, happened very soon after Trump's inauguration. And that kind of moment of people rising up, women rising up. I mean, there was a lot of criticism around it being very white and and too happy and cheerful and not angry enough. And yet here we are kind of, is it six, seven years later? I can't even. And it just, we feel, it feels way closer to living dolls, doesn't it? It feels like it's gone back so many more steps than it went forward. This is... The reality of feminism, isn't it? That we take steps forward and we're pushed back again. That always there's progress and there's backlash. And that seems to be this continual reality that we have to fight. But definitely, you know, I've been looking back at Living Dolls just now because it's been reissued for Virago's 50th anniversary. And it is really happy. But it really is telling to me you know there it is with a barbie-like doll on the cover and here we are you know we're talking Mm -hmm. the week before the release of this huge phenomenon of the barbie film and it feels that it's still really really hard for women to move out of those pink boxes you know for us to get away from that kind of dollification of of what it is to be a woman to get away from that self-consciousness that hypersexuality you know those pressures on the weigh so heavily particularly on young women so now you know look thinking about that I just think you know the courage that it took for my mum in the early mid-60s to look at that kind of those feminine conventions and go yeah actually but no you know I want I want to live my life on my terms so yeah she was one of those women women who sort of took off the bra who didn't shave her legs you know and she was she found that a very sort of natural step. Why not? And why aren't other women going to be doing this? And I think she was Mm -hmm. a bit shocked, you know, when I grew up, you know, when I was a teenager and was like, actually, you know, I really like reading Vogue. And then I went to work at Vogue and it was very much like, I think she found that quite challenging. But as I say, I think we, you know, had good conversations about it. And I think that's really important to me to remember as well now, because there's a lot of 
division of, you know, between the generations mm. in feminism. And this isn't the only generation. Obviously, that's how it keeps happening. You know, when I published the new feminism, it was very much set up as a bit of a, you know, a lot of newspapers set it up as its kind of fight between the younger generation, you know, and the older. And it was really, I found really, really uncomfortable. And now, of course, I'm the older feminist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you and how see, does you that know, feel, do you think, now? Because you are exactly in that position, aren't you? of younger women uh, saying what you what we think is crap or wrong Mm. or that we didn't really achieve anything how does that feel for you for someone who's been at the vanguard a bit for so long well that's not all I get from young women to be fair I mean I do I've been having some really lovely conversations since Living Dolls came out I quite Mm. often meet younger women who because I was already not that young when I published Living Dolls, you know, but it's a book that younger women read, Mm. it seems to me. A lot of young women read it. And so I have had really great conversations. So I think there's a lot of good conversations that are to be had. And also I think that some of the criticism that younger women have of older women is not entirely unjustified in that we work Mm. fucking hard, you know, to do a lot but we have not got, there's a mm. lot of stuff that we got wrong or that we missed out. And I think, point it out, let's have those conversations, you know, not in a spirit of doing each other down, but I want to hear those. I want to have those conversations. I want to get into those arguments, real arguments, not those sort of toxic social media yes. ridiculous spats that lead nowhere, but real conversations and real arguments. And, you know, one of the real shortcomings of living dolls this you may feel this is a bit of a tangent what we've been talking about is it is a book about white women and some of the really mm. interesting conversations that I've had obviously in the years since it's published are with women who aren't white who are saying mm. either saying it's you know it's shocking to me how I still feel seen in that book even though I'm not the women that you're right or the stereotypes that you're writing about or women that say I don't feel seen and why didn't you you know, why haven't you had those conversations and why aren't you telling other stories? So I think these are just such important conversations and I want to have them. You know, I'm somebody, I don't shy away from different, I like getting into these conversations, but I want them to happen in the right way. And one of the things that really struck me as well, delving into my parents' lives and what it was like being a campaigner in the 1960s, and this is something I feel quite passionately, is they worked in a very special and important way because they worked face to face and because they didn't have Mm. the mediation of these huge social media platforms owned by distant corporations that are basically using us for their profit. And what gives them the profit is the anger, is the, you know, that destructive anger. But they didn't have that. I'm not saying they didn't have, of course they had arguments, bitter arguments, you know, my father was a master of <laughs> lifelong feuds, you know, so <laughs> absolutely they had arguments. But they also, through having those arguments face to face, built this respect and solidarity in real time, you know, in rooms with real people. And I just think we need to value that. I'm not saying that doesn't happen anymore. Of course it does. But I think we just have to realise how corrosive some of the ways that campaigning is carried on at the moment can be. Well, I think that's the things it's very much easier to throw bile at people that you've never met and never will meet. Yeah. You know, but like um, I say, you know, my dad was absolutely brilliant. At, I mean, the things he said to people's faces 
I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you'd be nervous about saying on Twitter. (laughs) But he was he was very sort of courageous in that way. (laughs) Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> I was struck by something you you said about being kind of women of our generation. I think we're more or less the same age, but but probably also older and younger women being hyper conscious of other people's expectations. Mm -hmm. And but also how having criticized the way women impose that discipline on themselves, whether it's refusing to age or whether it's, you know, body image or or what it is. But the fact that, you know, that eternal feminist kind of conflict, like I'm a feminist, but I want to lose half a stone. And, you know, I'm a feminist, but, you know, um, and that kind of extent to which you have, well, in your words, taken some pleasure all my life in the constant exercise of control and the payback it's given me in social approval. How do you feel that has changed, if at all, as you've got older? I think it has changed for me as I've got older, in good ways and bad, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, you know, I've I've embraced my grey hair. I've enjoyed doing that and not sort of feeling that I have to, you know, that when I go out, I'm not objectified in the same way as I was so that I don't have to be conscious of that. And I feel that in many ways enables me to focus more on what I'm kind of bringing in other ways, you know, my voice or my experience or my support for others. Do you know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. there isn't this attention directed on my looks anymore. And so that makes things easier. I feel that's a positive in many ways. But of course, it can also be a negative role for women because we also become, can become, you know, invisible in many contexts. And I think we also 
often feel we have to be kind of super careful not to overstep in some context. You know, as a sort of white middle-aged middle-class woman, I sometimes feel well, I really don't want to, to raise my voice when I'm annoyed because I really don't want to sort of come over as that sort of squawky Karen who, you know, um, is making a fuss over there in the corner of the restaurant. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I think yeah. there's that, as always, you know, we're fighting to live authentic lives and stereotypes keep sort of squashing the breath out of us. And we, it's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work mm. to push those aside and to try and forge forward and I do feel you know going back to this book that there's something about the way that my mum did it that I do Mm. feel you know was inspiring and definitely when she aged I'm not saying that you know aging is never easy but I I do kind of love looking back to see the way she aged you know she had this sort of waist length white hair and I've got lovely images from a you know a party of the year before she die where she's got a waist length white hair and this white trouser suit and she's just rocking it you know yeah. <laughs> that's great I mean your mum had a really I think to say she had a rebellious approach to that kind of you know the way that we're meant to age but not look like we're aging but also not look like we're trying too hard not to age she just had zero time for that didn't she absolutely she absolutely had zero time for it she was totally uninterested and she was actually baffled by other women's interest in it I remember (laughs) her being absolutely baffled when she saw me put a face mask on when I was you know 14 or something to try and deal with my spots what are you smearing on your face she was completely you know it was she had zero interest in all of that and that's incredibly refreshing I must say for a teenager growing up in that kind of environment but you went the other way didn't you we all have to rebel in some way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there's a, there's a, a, <laughs> a moment in the book where when you work on Vogue and you're talking about um, you've been out and bought shoes in your lunch <laughs> hour and your mum says, but you've got shoes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I so <laughs> remember that conversation. She said, but you have shoes. And I thought it's so great, isn't it? The idea yeah. that you've got enough to have enough. Is that something that we've lost, that idea of having enough? You know, Mm. capitalism drives us always to desire more, to desire more. I think we really have bought into it. We're constantly in that process of self-improvement and consumption, and it can never end. It can never be enough. You know, my mother just didn't have that. But you have shoes. I love that. Yeah. At a time, you know, in a generation where, you know, think of sex in the city and how basically Mm. liberation was sold back to us as having the biggest shoe cupboard, you know, the the Manolo Blahniks, you know, it's so it's for me a great alternative. I think what my mother gave me, it's a touchstone. I think we need more of that spirit, of her spirit. I think um, I I need it as my screensaver, but you have have shoes. I hear myself saying it to to my daughter, of course, now, because now that I've, you know, I'm at the other end and I feel, yeah, I have shoes. (laughs) Yeah, I have way more shoes than I need. Well, all I want now is the comfortable shoes. You know, all my heels have have gone on eBay long ago. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. I still have a handful of pairs, but I think about the high heels I had when I worked in magazines and I could walk in them, you know. Now I can't even look at them without wincing, let alone wear them. <laughs> no, totally. God, what, what was I thinking? Your mum really kind of symbolised a sort of feminine rebelliousness, didn't she? Which was maybe suppressed in her 
early years of campaigning with your father. Do you think that we're seeing more or less of that now? I think we're seeing less of it in many places. And it's something that I want to hold on to and to believe in. But I think there are definitely places, you know, there are campaigns, there are places in the world where you do see that kind of feminine rebellion. And I do feel that, you know, in recent years, I feel that in the environmental movement, you do see women taking, you know, important roles as spokespeople, as campaigners, young women and older women, you know, young women like Greta Thunberg, but all the way through to more experienced campaigners as well across the world. So I wouldn't say it's gone, but I definitely wrote the book from a moment when I felt I couldn't find it, that it was Mm. missing to me. You know, my mother took her life, as I say, at the end of 2017, and it felt as though it really coincided with a time when people were feeling they needed, for some reason, this masculine nationalist spirit again in politics. You know, it was the rise of Trump, of Boris Johnson, Mm. but across the world, you know, Modi, Erdogan, you just saw so many of these macho leaders that seemed that people, you know, population seemed to be putting faith in as, as if, as if that kind of rigid masculine quasi-strength is going to be the answer to our problems. It's not, you know, and I do think we need to return to that what I see as a feminine spirit and a spirit of rebellion and resistance. Do you think in terms of your own activism, because I, I really want to talk about your um, your middle-aged civil disobedience, I feel like I should join you. Do you think to, does it, to a certain extent, have you taken up, is there an element of taking up your mother's life in civil disobedience in your mid-50s? Yeah, I think maybe you could say that, although I didn't, I'm not sure that I felt that consciously when I started getting more involved in civil disobedience. So, you know, I have been involved in campaigning Mm. throughout my sort of, particularly my 40s and 50s, particularly um, for the rights of refugees. But the surge of activism in Extinction Rebellion, I felt it was something that I really did want to get involved in. I felt that there was something so valuable at this time for people saying, no, we're not going to have this. Things really, really have to change. The world, if we stay as we are, you know, the world is moving to catastrophe and we've not got much time. So we need to push back right now, right now, come out into the streets, right now, join us in resistance, right now, try and get the government to change, try and get people to change. So I felt that was really valuable and I wanted to join in. It was strange to me then that I felt at times as though I was taking the spirit of my parents with me a sort of very personal and inward way. But that wasn't the reason why I joined, you know, I joined Mm. that movement for political reasons. But certainly I felt that very deep personal connection with what my parents had done. I feel pretty sure that if they were still alive, they would have been there with me. But I can't, obviously, I I can't be absolutely sure, but I feel pretty sure that that would have been the case. And so I joined in in the end of 2019, autumn of 2019. I was active in Extinction Rebellion and I was arrested 
after helping to sort of block the roads. I don't know if you remember that, Ren, but it was a really, yeah. there was this wonderful, very joyful spirit, particularly, it was throughout London, but particularly it sort of coalesced around Trafalgar Square and we blocked the routes into Trafalgar Square and, and that was then held as a place of discussion, debate, you know, people sharing food, uh, sharing ideas, you know, thinking about how to take forward uh, the environmental movement. And I was one of the people that, help with the initial sort of blocking of those roads. So I was held then overnight in the police station. And then a couple of days later, I came, I mean, I came back into the square immediately this the following day. And then a few days later, I joined this group Writers Rebel and I read something that my father had written in the 1960s about when he was involved in the nuclear disarmament movement. And I was so struck, Sam, by how it just felt as though it had been written for this moment you know, with some changes, uh, he did use man. Yeah, of course <laughs> he did. Standing yeah. for humans. But, you know, it did feel very strongly to me on a personal basis, as though I was kind of walking on a, on a bridge that they'd built or as though they'd laid some sort of ground for me to move forward. You know, that might sound very sort of solipsistic. I don't know. But I feel that that also is true, not just it's not just about me, my parents, but also just if we think about these movements, we do work on ground that other people have prepared for us. You know, as feminists, mm. we stand on the shoulders of feminists that have gone before. If we're working in other movements that are trying, you know, to move forward, say, the environmental agenda or who are trying to think of how to move beyond capitalism or move beyond, you know, growth economics... We're also, it's really important, I think, not to lose sight of our history and that people have worked hard and put their lives on the line and put their energies and their intellect into these movements before. I think we're stronger if we hold on to our histories. Interested that when at one of the Extinction Rebellion meetings they asked who was prepared to be arrested, that it was only you and another middle-aged woman who were I mean, you explain why that is in the book, but yeah. why do you think that was? Yes. Well, I think it was in that particular meeting. Um, so there was a group of us. It was a local, what's called an affinity group, where you meet and sort of, you know, you build the bonds. You know, I was talking about how important I feel this is to meet face to face and build solidarity networks. So it's this great opportunity to talk about, you know, what everyone's appetite is for risk and what they feel they bring to the group. And it was a range of people in that group that day in that garden, including young people, students or, you know, younger workers, you know, workers in childcare, you know, workers in university research and including a couple of people who are a bit older, people in their 50s. I think we were probably the oldest in our 50s, but of course, there are people active in extension of up to their 90s. So, you know. Um, and yes, it was striking to me that it was me and this other woman of a similar age to me who were the ones prepared to be arrested. And, you know, the reasons for the other people not wanting to get arrested were absolutely right. You know, they were so right. Mm. Some of them were migrants. So they had they didn't yet have settled status or they were on temporary visas. So it would have been really dangerous for them mm. to be arrested, as we've seen. 
Others were working in where their employers were, you know, local authorities or schools or, you know, they were in childcare settings or whatever, where any conviction could be really problematic for their employment. And others were students who literally didn't know what they were going to do next, you know, and didn't yeah. really didn't want to have that hanging over them. And I think that's completely right. So it was telling to me that there is this strength sometimes in being older not for you know many older people are also in tentative unsettled or you know in those Mm. more vulnerable positions obviously but for some of us we have a privilege that comes with age I thought it was great that I was able to use that in that way and I think if you look at the profile of people who are arrested for extinction rebellion I think it does skew young and old you know it skews young as in people who feel that kind of wonderful, the invulnerability of youth, which mm. I describe in my parents' lives in this memoir, that, you know, they can kind of go out and take risks because they have this sort of beautiful courage and optimism of the youth. And then a lot of people being arrested for Extinction Rebellion are older people who are like, it's okay, you know, I can manage the risks that come with this. I can think through the risks and their risks that I can manage. And I'm okay, say, if I can't get a visa to go to the United States. Do you know what I mean? I've done that. I've done the travel. I don't need to do that anymore. So you can kind of work it out and manage it. So I think that's lovely. And one thing that I have found in Extinction Rebellion is that there's a lovely coming together across the generations that you don't feel kind of weird for being old. If you're not, Mm. you know, that you want to get involved in this stuff and the young and the older going to work together. There are other problems I know in Extinction Rebellion that it's not often a welcoming space for people who aren't white or who aren't middle class, but I think it's really good on cross-generational working. Were you charged with anything or did you just get a caution? Yes, yeah, I was convicted with obstruction of the highway, which in those days, because that was pre this new legislation, was a very Mm. minor offence that only carried a minimal fine and I got the very most minimal fine for that. Of course, now obstruction of the highway is a much more serious offence because we're living under this very repressive government that's put, Mm. it's just so much more repressive. And so obstruction of the highway can even carry a custodial sentence. There's the possibility of that. It's much more risky now for people to protest. I don't think we should pretend that isn't the case. We need to stand up, I think, and defend our rights to protest. There was just one more thing on this. There's something that you wrote that really resonated with me, where you were saying that this was a time in your life where, you know, after you've spent your life managing people and taking responsibility and organising and that you just don't want to organise anything. You don't want to manage anyone. You don't want to take responsibility except for yourself. You just want to contribute and be useful. And literally when I read that, I just thought that was that was just like a big flashing neon sign to me because I feel (laughs) exactly like that I just I just don't want to I just don't want any of that anymore I want to do stuff that makes a difference but I don't want to be responsible for anyone else's salaries or schedules or anything and do you think what do you think that is do you think that's like a 50 something thing is it a what do you think it is I think it's great in many ways why can't you know I felt that was the thing with this but I often hesitated about putting certain things down on paper because I thought well, you know will people judge me that I don't want to say be the leader anymore oh. you know which is what I'm really saying that and I think often 
you know, particularly in feminist discourse, we we often talk about the importance of like stepping into your power, you know, mm. owning the whole leadership, your leadership potential, you know, looking for great role models. And the role models are sort of highly visible women with this huge amount of responsibility. And da, da, da. But I think there's also a massive value in stepping into your desires to contribute, you know, to be part of a network, to be part of a movement, to be part of change without feeling that you have to go, me, 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 I'm going to take the responsibility. And it's really important in a movement to feel that, to feel that you can, you know, make that contribution. And I think, yes, I really, I feel there's a huge value for that in that. And that we should be okay about saying that sort of individualism, you know, where I'm going to sort of step forward and the focus is going to be on me. That's not for me right now. So, yeah, it was very important for me to join in with something without being the leader anymore. The other thing I suppose I just want to say, one of the important parts of the journey that I went on, that I think might resonate for your listeners, is that you know, I was grieving when I started writing that book. I was deeply, deeply unhappy, whatever you want to say, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety, you know, but I was I was in a very, very dark place. And I felt that a lot of the messages that I was getting from others and from society were about self-care, was about mm. looking after myself, isolated from the rest of society. And so I mapped some of the ways that I tried to do that. You know, I went and did my yoga. I went and did my running and my swimming and my gardening. I sort of looked after myself. I took some time off work to look after myself. And that worked up to a point and it was really nice. And I was lucky that I was able to spend some time doing that. But what actually really worked for me in terms of sort of reconnecting with who I am and moving beyond, moving out of grief completely, because you don't, you know, if you, Mm. when you lose people you really love, you're, you know, the grief does stay with you, but feeling able to sort of participate in the world again, not being completely kind of corroded by the grief. What really worked for me was stepping back out into the world and joining up with other people who are trying to make change. So I just wanted to say that really, because I think that often we individualize, you know, when we're unhappy, when we're anxious, when we're depressed, we sort of feel I have to fix it. I'm going to go into my own little space to fix it. And that can work. But sometimes to fix it or, you know, to make things better, to be able to, you know, to come through. What does work is actually joining up with other people, working with other people, helping other people, volunteering with people or getting active, being arrested with other people. You know, it's all I think those kind of making those connections and thinking actually this isn't just about me it's also society. It's so interesting that you say that because I had actually written down self-care like a corset and I think that's I mean I so agree that kind of I hate mindfulness and calm too it's just, mm-hmm. it's not for everyone you know. It's not for everyone and fair play to those who it helps you know one of my very good friends who my closest friends who read the book said, I think you are a bit mean to people who like yoga. I was like, (laughs) that was not my intention. And in fact, I do a lot of yoga. I still do yoga. I love it. But it's not, that's not all, you know, and I think in order to live a sort of decent, happy life and to get past these dark times, Think about that, those wider changes that you want to be part of. That's really good. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask now. What's your emotional age? I found this one quite hard because it's not that I think I'm young for my age. I'm really happy to be 56. But in some ways, I feel 
emotionally, I haven't changed as much as some people my age, that I'm still somebody who really gets <laughs> really fired up. You know, I have huge enthusiasms. I have huge amounts of sort of passion and anger. And I feel that often my kids who are 14 and 22 are the ones that are like, yeah, calm down, mom, actually. Yeah, not, yeah. Cool, you know, so I think my emotional age is possibly quite young maybe even a bit teenage at times, but is that so bad? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, okay, give us a book recommendation. So it can just be something great you read lately or it can be something you've cherished your whole life. So this is a new discovery for me, but not at all a new book. So you may be like, yeah, I read that 100 years ago, you know, not so much, but it's Natalia Ginsburg. Do you, have oh. you read? Yeah, because yeah, I, but I only discovered her recently too. I only discovered her recently and I'm just thinking, where was she all my life? I mean, I'm obsessed Out with of that. print. I know. And anyway, this book of essays, The Little Virtues, I'm just beginning to press on everybody. It just speaks to me so, 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 so much. And she has in it this amazing piece of advice about what you should teach your children. And she says, you should teach them not caution, but courage and a contempt for danger, not shrewdness, but frankness and a love of truth, not tact, but love for one's neighbor and self-denial, not a desire for success, but a desire to be and to know. And I just, we, it just sent shivers down my spine. But also there's bits of memoir in that book of essay. And it's just, it's just wonderful. So readable. And also her novels are extraordinary. And I just feel, you know, she was someone I had sort of in the back. Yeah, yeah. That I sort of knew vaguely who she was, but I never really read her properly until just recently. So. Yeah, I didn't know about the essay. So um, I'm going to check out the essay. So I've read, is it The Dry Heart? Yeah, which was absolutely brilliant. Right, what advice would you give younger women? Well, I do, because I do have a daughter, strange to you, I quite often find myself in the position of being asked for advice. And I try and give advice more along the lines of the advice I just read out by Natalia yeah. Ginsburg, which is, you yeah. know, follow just your good heart, advice. you know, yeah. just get on with it, feel the fear and do it anyway. People who don't make mistakes don't make anything, that kind of thing. Um, because I do feel that young people, it's it's anxious times, you know, and I feel there's a lot of self-consciousness and anxiety among young people, a fear of getting things wrong because the internet never forgets. And there's this sort of fear of, yes, of sort of being seen mm. to do the wrong thing and that not being able to go away. So that tends to be where my, you know, those, if I do advise, where my advice tends to go, which is try and, you know, yeah, feel the fear and keep going. But on a more sort of macro level, I try not to advise the younger generation because I don't know that we got it all that right, the older generation, given the world that we're bequeathing to them. You know, in a way, my advice would be don't do what we did. Try and find yeah. ways. Yeah, it would be don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> who is an older woman who's inspired you? Well, I'm going to have to obviously say my mother. And I mm. hope that, you know, by writing about her life, exploring her life and now publishing this book about her life I really hope that others will find inspiration in the way that she lived yeah I think that your wish will come true what is your superpower I think my continued enthusiasm keeps me going you know the thing I don't want I did really don't the physical aging doesn't bother me that much I mean obviously it's annoying when you know your knees hurt or whatever mm. what bugs me about the idea of aging is sort of stopping you know when you meet people that used to be sort of full of that fiery yes. zeal and they're sort of not 
anymore. They're stuck and they're mm. sort of sarky about people who are still going out there and being passionate. So I still have that enthusiasm and I, I want to keep hold of that. I want that to be my superpower forever. That is so, that is so true. It's like you can't stop being curious. Yes. And finding new things, you know, and developing your ideas. I'm very happy to say, you know, when I'm wrong and I feel there's something in our culture at the moment that's like you have to have got it all right the first time, you know, mm. you put anything out there and then you can't change, which I think is very depleting. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, isn't it? It's like so there's now it feels like there's now this idea that you don't even start if you can't win. Yes, exactly. You've got to have it all right. Yes. And I think that also, you know, ties back into that whole social media thing and the sort of mockery of people getting it wrong rather than wanting to engage in the arguments and discussions so that we can kind of learn from each other's mistakes. All right. Last one. How many fucks do you give? Well, obviously, I'd like to say I give zero fucks, but I care deeply about the opinion of people that I respect, you know, and I think I'm not sure that that is a bad thing. Because I think it is through sort of and trying to learn from one another. So if people gave me feedback and I wasn't, I was just, I don't care what you think and just sort of go that way you don't learn and you don't develop and you don't grow. But yeah, I try and have zero fucks about obviously what random guys say about my appearance or my um, opinions on the internet. Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved talking to you. It's, It's been such a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like our conversations with Kate Moss and Philippa Perry. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras, and more. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.